0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to all of you. Welcome back from spring break. We're so grateful that you made it safe and sound. We had students all over the country and around the world, I think. Some of you were in Florida for fun. Some of you were in Florida playing softball, baseball. The men's choir had the awesome privilege of, of going to places like Nebraska, and Iowa, and uh, Kansas, and are back and gave a smashing performance last evening. Uh, we have students I think even now who are in New York City awaiting the anticipation of fif- being nominated 15 times for the, uh, the Globe uh, again this year. And by the way, I should say congratulations because I think Goshen College, both in our television production and in our WGCS, were named by the Indiana Association of School Broadcasters for being the number one college in the state of Indiana for both television. and. That's pretty awesome because when it's the only school that have won both in the same year, other than one other school, and since they've been giving the awards. And if you look on the list, it's always Ball State, Ball State, Ball State, Ball State, Goshen College, Ball State, <laughs> or Valparaiso. I mean, Goshen College. It's my understanding that some of the major universities uh, petitioned. Uh, to have uh, the categories divided between those schools that are 10,000 and above students and those 10,000 and below, because the competition gets, uh, gets tough from our David story against the Goliaths. Well, anyway, welcome. That's a side note. I'm excited about that, uh, and uh, thanks to the communications department and, uh, for their great work, and for the rest of you as well. A key component of the Goshen College Core Values Institute includes the ongoing integration of the five core values here at Goshen College into the life of and practice of our students, our faculty, our administrators, our staff, and our board of directors. On an annual cyclical basis, we invite the entire college community to reflect on the spe- a specific core value for that entire year. And as you know, this year we've been focusing on the core values servant leadership. As part of the Core Values Institute here at Goshen, each year we invite thought-provoking, integrative papers and or projects from a broad segment of the Goshen College faculty, staff, and others to share in one or two annual public Core Values Institute forums. In making proposals, faculty and staff and administrators are invited to address such questions as, what is the meaning of this core value from within your particular discipline or work responsibility? Or how does your discipline help articulate and define this core value for yourself, your profession, and for others? or how does this core value as viewed through the lens of your particular work assignment at Goshen College contribute to the overall mission of Goshen College and so on and so forth. In other words, how does the core value impact your work and how do you uh, see that core value influencing uh, the ethos here at Goshen College in terms of our practice and our character. This academic year for Awards have gone to Mandy Yoder, who is the administrative assistant to the vice president enrollment. She proposed establishing an employee community service program, which is now up and running in which our employees are invited to do two. She wanted a whole week off to do service like a third week of paid vacation only doing service. Uh, We couldn't quite afford that, but uh, we uh, we implemented two days uh, in, in addition to the other kinds of voluntary service that are, that is done here at Goshen College. Some 60,000 hours of community service by you and others at Goshen College. Michael Scheer, director of IT Media, uh, received the award for developing with John D. Roth an online course in Anabaptist History, Theology, and Values with the intention of raising up the next generation of servant leaders in the church. And Meyer Beiler, the reference and instruction librarian received one for servants, servant leaders on the job proposal in which she identifies particular characteristics of servant leaders in the workplace here at Goshen College and is undertaking a survey of all of our uh, uh, employees here at the college and, and seeing what, what, they mean, what they believe to be servant leadership and how can we better uh, exemplify that particular core value in the workplace. And finally, Kevin Gary, who will be introduced in a minute for his paper, a portion of which we will hear this morning, entitled Liberal Education and the Folly of the Cross. At the close of Kevin's talk, we'll take a few minutes. I'll ask him some probing questions to further develop his thesis, uh, and then uh, we'll close out the session after that. I've asked Peter Martin, third year pre-med biochemistry major who's been a GC Maple Scholar, served uh, or took a philosophy class from Kevin and was with Kevin and Heather on SST in Peru this summer to come and introduce uh, Kevin Gary to us this morning. Peter, will you come?
1: Thank you. So the overarching theme for these chapels is servant leadership and I found it very appropriate to have have Kevin Gary speak about this topic. Kevin was my leader during SST in Peru and he modeled servant leadership in a way that helped our whole group grow through the SST experience. Whether it was playing musical chairs with our group at an orphanage or listening to us as we struggled to adapt to life in a new culture, Kevin was always around to listen and share. One thing I appreciated from Kevin the most was his desire to listen as I spoke about my own service experience. I had worked in a clinic in an underserved area of Peru, and I witnessed some difficult scenes there. I wrote about these experiences in my class journal, and Kevin asked me several times about my thoughts towards the experience. We discussed everything from economic justice to my own aspirations as a possible future physician, and I feel like I walked away from those conversations having done a semester's worth of thinking. Kevin's leadership helped both myself and the rest of the group navigate a new experience, and I think I can speak on behalf of our entire group when I say that we are all thankful to have had Kevin as our leader. So with that introduction, I would like to ask Kevin to come up front and direct our convocation this morning.
2: Well, first off, uh, echoing Jim, welcome back from break. Um, I especially would like to welcome any visitors to campus, uh, prospective students. Uh, I hope we see you here in the fall. Um, and I would like to thank President Jim Brenneman and my dean, uh, Anita Stalter, for this opportunity to speak about servant leadership and liberal education. A little bit about myself. This is my sixth year here at Goshen College. I was away on SST with my wife Heather and our three kids Evie, Lucas, and Gabe. I am in the education department and I am privileged to also teach in the Bible, religion, and philosophy department. In thinking about servant leadership, I'm reminded of work that I did one summer nearly 20 years ago at the Downtown Chapel in Portland, Oregon. The Downtown Chapel is a Catholic hospitality center that provides assistance to homeless and low-income residents. Each weekday at noon, there was a mass that attracted a variety of people, including business professionals, people suffering with chronic drug addiction, mental illness, retired folks, among others. I particularly enjoyed this Mass, this service, because it was, it was kind of like a session of British Parliament where people would um, shout out and interrupt things as they went along. One comment from that time stands out. As the priest was delivering his sermon, a woman yelled out about midway through, how hypocritical. I loved that disturbance that day. But I would ask that you please refrain from offering such comments today. When talking about servant leadership, an ever-present elephant in the room is hypocrisy, so let me introduce, reintroduce myself. My name is Kevin Gary and I am a hypocrite, some days more and some days less. While I believe that the ideal of servant leadership is what life is really about, I am ever challenged to live up to this ideal. Part one, existential crisis. Imagine an undergraduate moving through her general education requirements, not necessarily at Goshen College. In chemistry, she learns that human beings are an evolution of organic reactions. In biology, a complex aggregate of cells. From physics, she gleans that human beings and all matter are at their most elemental level, mere bundles of quarks, subject to four fundamental forces. Shifting to social sciences, she learns in her economics class that human beings are rational, self-interested agents, only to have that called into question in a psychology class where rationality is shown to graze the mere surface of what motivates human agency. Moreover, from psychology, she learns that religious aspirations are most probably sublimated sexuality or some other unresolved childhood neuroses. In addition, imagine that this student attends a liberal arts college that is religiously affiliated, where she is exposed to a faith tradition that believes that human beings are God's creation situated within an intelligible universe and prompted by divine revelation to keep rational, self-interested considerations in check so as to embrace a life rooted in service and love. Such is the quandary of the modern college and university that an undergraduate must navigate. For the professionally focused student, this vast array of dizzying perspectives might pose little or no existential threat as she moves from course to course with their eyes on future career achievement. Yet for another student, for other students, an existential crisis awaits as they struggle to make sense of this cacophony of voices. This bewilderment is perhaps cause for celebration as it appears like Socrates debunking conventional ideas. At best, it cultivates students who are careful about what they say and think, but it can also cultivate skeptics who conclude from the fragmentation of disciplines that reasoned conversation about ultimate meaning and purpose is a doubtful, if not futile, endeavor. Many colleges and universities offer what is commonly referred to as a liberal arts education. And by this, the basic idea is that it is an education for freedom by learning how to think critically and in this way becoming an autonomous person. As one college president describes it, A liberal education makes a person independent of mind, skeptical of authority and received views, prepared to forge an identity for him or herself, and capable of becoming an individual, not bent upon copying other people. It imparts in students the ability to be clinical, intellectual, and there's a third word there from the Logic Song by Supertramp. Does anyone know that? Come on, some of the older generation here. Clinical, intellectual, cynical. If you haven't heard the Logic song, I encourage you to Google it as it is the musical version of my talk today. This liberal education for personal autonomy is the dominant and prevailing view of what a liberal education should be about. But liberation towards what end? Autonomy is a worthy and important goal. We should think for ourselves and question authority and received views. But then what? Personal autonomy towards, towards where? This optimistic vision of a liberal arts education as an education for freedom avoids the existential questions that are not only worth raising, but require an answer that we live into. Such questions include, what kind of person should I strive to be? Which faith tradition, if any, should I embrace? What kind of work should I pursue, and how should I pursue that work? Whom should I marry, if anyone? What kind of community life should I nurture, if any? More than academic questions, these are personal. An education for personal autonomy, which trains us to, be, to critically hold multiple possibilities at an arm's length, does not equip us well to answer such questions. For answering such questions requires that we move beyond detached neutrality, moving from a way of thinking to a way of living. I graduated from the University of Notre Dame with a BA in political science, and I was working on a master's in fragmentation and existential confusion. That was a joke. In short, (laughs) I had no clear idea what I should do with my life. And as is true of some young Catholics, when we're suffering existential angst, we think about being a priest, men, women, sisters. I graduated and entered the seminary at Notre Dame to give priesthood a try. Part two, service. A key part of priestly formation is doing service. During my four years in the seminary, I got to work at a high school, a soup kitchen, a woman's shelter, a hospitality center, and a hospice care center. In retrospect, I can say that I did service poorly. But as G.K. Chesterton says, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. I'd like to share a couple stories from those experiences. The first is from a soup kitchen I worked at in Colorado Springs. One of my tasks that day, uh, and several days, was to serve food on the buffet line. I was in charge of doling out potatoes. And I have to say, I appreciated having a concrete, tangible task. We hear that service is about being and doing, but you know, sometimes it's nice to have just a clear doing. So I was doling out potatoes, and one of the guys approaching was Roy, and I'd been there, was about my fifth week there, and over the first few weeks, I'd connected with Roy more than anyone else at the shelter. Um, he moved from shelter to shelter, and he had a guitar that he would play to make spare change. When Roy approached me at my potato bin, he looked me in the eyes and said, I don't want your blanking potatoes. I'll let you fill in the blank. I was perplexed by this encounter. Fast forward a year later, I'm living and working at the downtown chapel in Portland, Oregon, again, doing service, and I put service in quotes because I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, The work at the downtown chapel was a ministry of presence. It required more being than doing, just sitting with, listening, and accompanying people. It was far more challenging than doling out potatoes. During my first week, I encountered Leonard, one of the clients who visited the center often. He was a disheveled, heavy-set, middle-aged man who wore dark sunglasses and who would talk, and I should say pontificate, endlessly on all matters. One morning, I found myself seated with Leonard, listening to one of his elaborate tales. And as the story started to get into areas of history, and I knew some facts from history, Uh, I realized that he was incorrect about some facts and I questioned him. Convinced I was right, I pressed my point and Leonard got up and walked away from me. From then on, behind my back, he referred to me as the evil one. He would ask other staff members when the evil one would be around so he could avoid me. He avoided me for several weeks. When I would walk into a room, he would dart for the door. Ever so cautiously, I began to reach out again to Leonard, careful to just listen and hear his stories. I considered it a triumph that by the end of the summer, he no longer referred to me as the evil one. Roy and Leonard were both teaching me about mental illness and how it can manifest itself when it goes undiagnosed and untreated. At 23 years of age, I was utterly clueless about this. It was a revelation, and for me, a painful, stumbling step towards the art of listening. In the first legend of the Holy Grail, it is said that the grail, the miraculous vessel that satisfies all hunger by virtue of the consecrated host, belongs to the first comer who asks, the guardian of the vessel, a king three-quarters paralyzed by the most painful wound, what are you going through? Simone Weil, the French philosopher, mystic, and social activist, says that, quote, the capacity to give one's attention to a sufferer is a very rare and difficult thing. It is almost a miracle. It is a miracle. She elaborates, quote, the love of neighbor in all of its fullness simply means being able to say to him or her, what are you going through? This way of looking is, first of all, attentive. The soul empties itself of all of its own contents in order to receive into itself the being it is just looking at, just as he or she is in all their truth, end quote. Nearly all those who think they have this capacity, notes Vey, do not. I have a long way to go, but I'm convinced that Vey is onto something very important and true. Part three, the liberal education of Pontius Pilate. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus is later arrested and interrogated by Pilate, he says to Pilate, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate responds, what is truth? This is perhaps the most philosophical question in the Bible, and it is compelling because it sounds so contemporary. At first first glance, it seems like a fair question, a question that might animate a philosophy class. Yet there is a clever evasion here. Pilate's simple question, what is truth, subtly detaches truth from testimony, from a way of life, from belonging to a particular group and thus hinders his ability to listen. Perhaps Pilate wanted an argument, a clear proposition that he could accept or refute. But rather than a set of propositions to be argued over, Jesus offers and points to a particular way of life. To listen to Jesus' testimony is to take up his way of life. Yet the gospel narrative suggest that there is a speck of sincerity in Pilate's interrogation of Jesus that he is more than just a bureaucratic cog within the empire's machinery, that in spite of his privilege, he is a human being wondering about the meaning of life. Yet for Pilate to listen to the testimony of Jesus as a beneficiary of an empire, he must lose a lot. And he thus retreats into a philosophical skepticism that maintains the status quo. He attempts to wash his hands clean of this sordid affair, taking the posture of neutrality, a signature, and in this case, convenient stance of a skeptic towards questions about ultimate meaning and purpose. A liberal education for personal autonomy trains us like Pilate to be good skeptics, which we should be. There is much to be skeptical about, but skepticism is not enough. The posture of holding back, doubting, deconstructing can be a paralytic. And if like Pilate we are situated with privilege in an empire, which we are, Our paralysis offers an answer that endorses the status quo. Part 4, the folly of the cross and belonging to the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what a perplexing life it is. He ended by being excommunicated by his religious tradition and executed as a criminal by the government. This is not a success story. Jesus was not a social climber. He invites us to take up the cross as the meaning of life, He testifies to this when he washes his disciples' feet, touches lepers, breaks bread with outcasts, and loves the poor. More than social justice or charity is at work here, as important as these are, it is the mystery of God's transcendent love in the world for the poor. God's privileged addressees are the poor and the outcasts. Returning to the downtown chapel, I recall the prayers of petition that were offered during the mass. They were the most earnest, heartfelt, and most tragic prayers that I'd ever heard. They were spoken by people whose need for God was so utterly transparent. My liberal education for personal autonomy and self-sufficiency made me uncomfortable with this transparency. A liberal education for commitment, embodied by the folly of the cross, says this is the way. In contrast to a liberal arts education for autonomy, a Christian liberal arts education offers an education for commitment. Yes, it imparts the tools of critical thinking, but it offers a narrative about the meaning of life that speaks to our heart's desire for ultimate meaning and purpose. Amen, that is all, thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. I will play Oprah to your Dr. Phil. I have uh, You eloquently defended the added value of a religious-based, what you called a commitment-driven liberal arts education, uh, and you advocated it as being somewhat folly to the alternative non-religious uh, traditional liberal arts education. In fact, you're suggesting that this, it's a kind of a, an education, even though it might be considered folly. In fact, it's wider, broader, deeper, and uh, more holistic, perhaps, a version of a truly liberal arts education. We could go on on that one. Right, That's right. very good. I couldn't agree with all of that more. So my questions arise out of fundamental agreement with yes. you as, as a means of having conversation. Uh, you, said, you said that one of the good tools of a the traditional liberal arts education is let's say the non-religious, typical religious, non-religious liberal arts education is to instill critical thinking mm-hmm. in, in students and it, the danger is to lead to cynicism. Mm-hmm. Okay, an alternative is a Christian liberal arts education that follow, attempts to follow Christ daily in life or teaches about uh, that to follow Christ is part of the alternative narrative of this kind of liberal arts education what keeps then a Goshen College student, let's say, who is here for four years, and they're getting the best of a liberal arts education in sort of a traditional sense, that is to become critical thinkers. And on top of that, they're getting a good Christian liberal arts education in which we teach students to be servant leaders, to follow Christ. And you said that Christ, uh, his commitment, his prophetic critique of the status quo, got him into trouble. He ended up getting killed, as we know, by the government. So it's almost as if we're, we're, our students are being blessed with a double dose of critical thinking and prophetic criticism. Mm-hmm. So what keeps our students from becoming the worst form of both options, namely a self-righteous Christian cynic with a messianic martyrs complex?
2: Well, wow, that's quite a question. Um, thank you. <laughs> Well, I would say uh, I, I'm arguing for a corrective to the dominant and prevailing view of a liberal arts education for critical thinking. But I would, I would absolutely say that they have to be balanced. And so I would say the skills of critical thinking, I think one of the benefits is to keep us from becoming proud, from becoming righteous. Um, I do want to say, though, that righteousness is certainly not, you know, Christianity doesn't have a monopoly on righteousness. I mean, there's agnostic, atheistic, secular righteousness. It is particularly obnoxious, though, when Religious folks are obnoxious because it you know, connotes issues of hell, damnation, and moral superiority. So I think that a liberal arts education for critical thinking um, really does uh, address that and, and come at that. But it needs to be balanced by then, what are you committing to? What, what is the end? So uh, I would say holding the two together, both and, has to happen. When I'm, in, when I'm in situations where there is an overbearing righteousness, my critical thinking you know, kicks in. Uh, just, and I think a good liberal arts education does that. The other thing I think a good liberal arts education does is it teaches us how to have a good conversation with people from all walks of life. And um, if you are righteous, you are ill-equipped to do that. And I think the kind of listening that Simone Veil is calling us to. Um, you know, a righteous person tends to be a bore, and a bore tends to go on and on. So I'll stop right now.
0: (laughs) Good. What I'm hearing is, uh, in addition to the prophetic critique or criticism, there's this constructive side as well, this maybe hopeful vision as part of the narrative as well. Um, Are there certain majors or professions or areas of study that are deemed better suited for a liberal arts education of commitment? to Jesus than others. and This comes out of the context of John Howard Yoder in 1960s, uh, wrote a paper, and um, we don't want him to trip over his, yeah, uh, yeah, sorry. John Howard Yoder wrote a paper and wondered aloud in this essay, whether it was uh, a Christian liberal arts college or university ought to be about the STEM uh, professions. For example, example, teaching science, technology, uh, what does Z stand for? Engineering, yes, and mathematics, that maybe we should focus more on the philosophies and the arts and other things like that. And Rihanna Nichols, some of you, a graduate of 2010, she was a Maple Scholar. She did a study of the last 117 years here at Goshen College in the record, in all of our public presentations, in our documentation, public documentation. And she noticed that over the hundred, In some years, we have tended to promote certain professions at the expense of others, that is, in a disproportionate number. So my question is, um, does an engineer or astronomer or computer technician, a math science business major, a music Broadway performer or a sports newscaster, how do they stack up against, let's say, a pastor or educator, a nurse or social worker or an MCC Peace Corps volunteer from the perspective of a liberal arts education that mm-hmm. attempts to follow Jesus as a servant leader? Right.
2: Um, no, I think we need servant leaders in all of the professions that you've mentioned. I mean, you mentioned a, a performer. When I think about being in, in theater and having moments of revelation, you know, that the performers help to catalyze. Uh, um, you'd also mentioned, uh, Jim had emailed me these questions, thankfully. Um, um, you'd also mentioned a sportscaster And I think about the kinds of decisions that, you know, and the kinds of stories and the way a sportscaster can cover those stories can be informed by servant leadership. Um, When I think about the sciences and I think about the extraordinary funding uh, that comes from the government that does direct the kinds of questions that a scientist is asked to answer, that's where I I think the question of, you know, a liberal arts education towards what end is really critical. Towards what end? I was at a conference at Calvin College a couple years ago, and one of the members of the conference was this wonderful person, really low-key, gentle soul. And I asked some other folks, I said, what, he, what does he do? And they said, oh, he's like the wealthiest donor that Calvin has ever had. The Institute, the Kyers Institute, he's one of the primary. And I said, well, what does he do? And they said, you know what he does? He goes into businesses that have fallen apart, and he turns them around. And what he's good at doing is he's good at going around and talking with the workers that are there to find out what what has gone wrong. And so I think that would be an example of servant leadership. However, on the other hand, I don't want to say servant leadership leads to making lots of money and being able to contribute, because I do think the cross comes. So I think we need it in all all situations. When I go to get a mortgage at a bank, I pray and hope that I'm encountering a servant leader, all the more so if it's someone who's helping low-income families get a, a good mortgage. And, and so, I mean, I think in all of the professions. In terms of disproportionately covering teachers and social workers, I think, I think it's wonderful. Teachers should, you know, receive all kinds of status. I teach in the education department, by the way. However, um, I think in being able to name how a sportscaster can be a servant leader is, is critical. Yes. Uh, so, and.
0: Thank you. Um, you talk about this liberal arts education of commitment as being part of a community of truth. Mm -hmm. We have, in a sense, belong to a community of truth in order to discern the great truth questions out there. Mm -hmm. And we know that, historically, colleges and universities began in the church. Mm -hmm. And um, they were oriented in communities, so-called communities of truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, In this case, in Western tradition was primarily Roman Catholic Mm -hmm. uh, universities. But let's say they were established as these communities of commitment that you're describing. Then the Enlightenment came along as a way of breaking free and providing a little bit more autonomy because we ended up having dogmatists calling Galileo a heretic because he had a different uh, view of the universe. So, enlightenment brought this notion of distancing and more clinical withdrawal, more objectivity as a balance to that. And now Mm -hmm. you're calling for us to return, in some sense, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: to those liberal arts communities of commitment. Mm -hmm. So how does this version differ from earlier versions Mm -hmm. when it comes to questions of seeking Mm -hmm. out truth by our faculty Mm -hmm. or our scientists that we're preparing? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, um, I think the argument is, you know, how do we preserve academic freedom, critical questioning, you know, and and is there this dominant narrative that's going to interfere with that? And um, again, I would say a couple things. Academic freedom for what, and academic freedom from what? Um, I'm thinking of, you know, in the 1940s, scientists at the University of Chicago took the science of Einstein to create an atomic bomb. It was a government-funded initiative. And I don't know if I'd call that academic freedom so much as academic regulation. So I think that this conversation about academic freedom and religion, I think religion gets picked upon as the, as the boogie, boogie person, but, but academics are, are constrained in other ways, by corporations, by governments, as well as by, and, and, and less so, by religious narratives. I think it was a good corrective, because I actually think that a college like Ocean College 40, 50 years ago, you would have had chapel and convo probably four or five times a week. Is that right, historians here?
0: Yeah. Five times. A week. Imagine that,
2: uh, and five times a week, and mm-hmm. I think maybe Goshen is true. You would have been required to go to Sunday services. Oh. That was before my time. Okay. I didn't go um, to Sunday services. Which is which is to say <laughs> all the times, usually. Which is to say that a college like Goshen and other denominational colleges 70, 80 years ago were very sure of what the truth was and how to live into the truth, and we're going to require our students and push them through that. Right. Um, I, don't, I actually think that was unchristian in, in, in the compulsion, um, whereas now I think a college like Goshen and other colleges, they invite and offer uh, opportunities for commitment, SST being, I think, perhaps the capstone of that.
0: Okay, so it, it's more invitational than compulsory it's now. It's more
2: invitational than compulsory. I certainly don't think uh, religious authorities like Paul Kime should be getting into the physics classroom and saying, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, um, Right? Okay, <laughs> all right. right.
0: Although he probably would like that ability to name heretics where he can right. find them right. the, on the right. campus. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Uh, yeah. One last question. Um, there are all kinds of Christian and or religious liberal arts institutions that have deeply in their ethos uh, this notion of the added value that the religious perspective brings to all disciplines. Uh, So what happens, or who adjudicates between uh, various liberal arts colleges of commitment, especially in this day and age when the differences between various Christian colleges, let's say, may be greater than those between the Christian, a particular Christian college, and or the standard liberal arts college of the standard project that you were trying to get us away from. In other words, there are some Christian colleges that may be more like the so-called secular liberal arts college and other Mm -hmm. Christian colleges that are more committed in various ways. Who Mm. who holds the brand? Who assesses which Christian liberal arts college is truly the community of truth that you're
2: describing? Well, I'm a Catholic, so the Pope, of course. (laughs) uh, uh, (laughs) All right, touche, touche. No, I, I, I don't think there is this arbiter that it just doesn't exist, uh, nor can it exist, even among the Catholic tradition, where the papal authority is you know, at loggerheads with all of its institutions, certainly in the United States, especially Notre Dame. Um, I, I think each, each uh, denominational college offers its own you know, invitation to a particular way of following Jesus. And I think that's all it can do. And, and it's hopefully, hopefully, you know, and Mennonites, I think, are, are particularly uh, blessed in that, you know, judge them by their fruits. And uh, it's about the practices. And, and, and it's living it. And so the argument I'm making in this paper is that it's in the actual living it that you actually come to some knowledge. And it's not something that we sort out rationally in advance. You're not going to argue your way to a faith commitment. You have to take it on and live it. And, and, and then wisdom comes from that. So I don't think there's an arbiter. Um, I really don't. Mennonite Church USA or the Pope, uh, Okay. maybe, maybe not. I don't know. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll
0: bat that one back to Paul. He can be the arbiter.
2: <laughs> well, this has
0: been a stimulating conversation for me. I hope it was for you as well. I think we could do this for quite some time, but we won't hold you all here any longer. Let me just say at the top of uh, Kevin's paper, which you did not uh, see, He had this quote from the Bible, 1 Corinthians 1.25, and and I want to say thank you, Kevin, very much for uh, uh, leading us and helping us to think about that. But from that text, the apostle Paul says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So let's go from here today, let's not be fooled by those who claim to be wise and let's not fear being seen the fool in the name of all that is good, right, just, and true. Thanks for coming out. Thank Thank you very much for coming out.